If you have a Bible today, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 22. Uh, Acts chapter 22 is the uh, the chapter that we're uh, up to. We've been working through the book of Acts. Uh, we started last year with season one, and we got through Acts chapters 1 through 15, and then in the fall of 2023, we picked up where we left off, and uh, we hope to finish this book in the next six or seven weeks. And so we're we're nearing the end, and, and we're taking these last sections kind of chapter at a time. And uh, so today we'll look at almost all of chapter 22. Uh, anytime the church gathers on what's called the Lord's Day, you, you might know the difference that the Sabbath in the Old Testament was the seventh day of the week. It was the, the Saturday, and it started for, uh, for, the, uh, for Jewish people on Friday night at 6 o'clock to Saturday night at 6 o'clock, and that was considered their day period. And so the seventh day started uh, on Friday at 6 o'clock, and so they observed the Sabbath during that 24-hour period. Uh, but the church, when the church began to gather, early on in the book of Acts, you, you'll remember, they began to meet on what they started to call the Lord's Day. And they met on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, because that was the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And so we meet, uh, continuing that pattern of worship on the Lord's Day. And every time we get together, this is basic stuff for, for those of you who have been in church for a long time, but whenever the church gathers on the Lord's Day on Sunday, there's a few things that we do um, every single time. And we call that pattern of worship a, a liturgy. And every church has a liturgy, even if they don't call it. Some are way more formal, and you recite things and creeds and confessions, and you sing a certain hymn, and you read particular passages. Other churches have a much more loose liturgy, but every sort of uh, observance of these different elements that we do every time we gather together is is structurally called that liturgy. Uh, But every Sunday when we gather, we gather um, really for fellowship and encouragement from each other, to build each other up, to spur each other on, to encourage each other in our walks with Jesus. We, we of course, sing worship songs to the Lord, to Jesus. We, we pray together when we have opportunity. We observe ordinances. Uh, Jesus told the church to do two things in particular when they got together, uh, to observe baptism and to observe the Lord's Supper as often as we do it. Uh, we um, focus our attention on a passage of Scripture. And some churches teach uh, sort of in a topical way. They might do a seven-message series on marriage or parenting or finances or some topical kind of a series. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but we happen to stand on this conviction that the healthiest way for a church to grow and for you to grow in your spiritual formation is by working through one particular book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and then teaching that passage. If you were to stick around uh, through a series, you should have enough notes that if you wanted to teach a Bible study in your office or in your home or at your school or or in your community or uh, somewhere else, that, that you would at least have the sort of introductory level of familiarity with that book. And so uh, we post these sermons online, and so if, if you'd like to uh, brush up a little bit on any of these chapters and acts, you're, you're welcome to. But, but our hope is that you gain some sort of level of not just familiarity, but understanding of what we're talking about, what the Bible's talking about in each of these chapters. So today is Acts 22, and, and so if you follow along, you'll be able to understand what's happening in Acts chapter 2. Acts has 28 chapters total, and we've, we've obviously finished the first 21. But as we approach this last section of Acts, what we see is the Apostle Paul is shifting gears. For the previous 10 years of his ministry, he has really been on offense, just 
teaching the gospel, going from city to city, from place to place, with a relative amount of freedom to go into a city, to travel around that city, to, to be a tent maker by trade, but also to preach the gospel. And so as he's been doing this, he's had a relative amount of freedom. But once he enters into Jerusalem in, in, in last week's section in Acts 21, um, Paul, for the remainder of the book of Acts, is, is largely in prison. And instead of being offensively taking the gospel to different places, uh, he's really, uh, matter of fact, this section of scripture, these last six chapters, Paul is going to make five defenses of his faith. He'll be put in prison, kept away in a cell or in some sort of a house arrest system, depending on the location. And then he'll be called out to make some sort of a defense for his faith. And there's five of them in the remaining chapters. And today's passage is the first of those defenses. So we're going to work through the text. And uh, just to give you some context, if you weren't here last week, Paul finally made it to Jerusalem. He was he was greeted warmly by uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, and by the other elders and teachers at the Jerusalem church. He had been collecting a financial gift to relieve the poverty uh, uh, from what was taking place in, in Judea. And so he, he had gathered up all this money from all the churches that he had planted all over um, Asia and, and in uh, Europe, what we would know as Europe. And, and he, he's delivered all that money to them so that they could disperse it to relieve the suffering that was taking place in the Jerusalem area. He had also spent a lot of time telling them all the things that God had done, the salvation stories, the churches that were planted, the, the leaders who were brought up. He spent a lot of times doing, a lot of time catching them up on all that God had done through him. And then James told Paul, he said, Brother, there are many, many thousands of Jews here in Jerusalem that have placed their faith in Jesus. Uh, but they're also really zealous for the law of Moses. And that was last week's sermon. And so James makes this suggestion to Paul. He says, they've heard that, that you don't believe in Moses anymore and that you have neglected our Jewish heritage and our culture. And, and so they think that you've just abandoned what we would know of as the Old Testament way of Jewish living, their culture, their heritage, uh, the laws that they observed and the practices that they observed. And so because of that, because of their false assumptions um, of these non-Jews, um, they suggested that Paul demonstrate that he is still a faithful Jewish person by taking on a vow of purity. This would have been really common for a Jew who was based in Israel or Jerusalem area, that if they had traveled throughout the Roman Empire, that they would come back and they would take this sort of vow of purity. So Paul agrees. There are four other brothers that he is going to pay for their Nazarite vow, which was a 30-day vow where they shaved their heads. And they uh, Paul had done this between his second and third missionary journey. So now he's, he's going to take this vow of purity and he's going to present himself in the temple. He's going to tell the priests, I'm going to take this vow of purity. And on the seventh day, we're going to offer these sacrifices and give this offering. And so he made all that known so that he could demonstrate that he was still faithful and loyal to his Jewish culture and heritage, even though Jesus had called him to preach the gospel um, to the Gentiles primarily. That's where the, the struggle was for those faithful Jews in and around Jerusalem. So after a few days, that is within seven days of, Jesus, uh, of Paul's vow, he was seen in the temple and some Jews from Asia said, there he is. This is the guy who has 
completely abandoned Mosaic law and Jewish heritage and culture, and he probably even brought Trophimus, um, this Ephesian Gentile, into the temple. And so there, there became this riot. They, they grabbed Paul, they, um, they ushered him out of the temple complex, they shut the temple gates, is what chapter 21 tells us. They com- completely went into lockdown mode, shut off the temple completely, drug Paul out um, into the city, and they began to beat him to death outside of the temple grounds. There is a, a Roman military compound that was, uh, if you've ever visited Jerusalem, you'll know that the, that the Temple Mount right there, it's right next to this large um, Roman occupying force. They had a military base right there uh, to keep Jerusalem under control because there were constantly fights and riots uh, around the temple complex. And so they, they dispatched the troops, they dispatched all the, the people that they needed to to quell this uh, riot that was taking place. Uh, and they actually came upon Paul and rescued him. As the scripture says, he was about to be beaten to death. And this is where we pick up the story here this week. So um, look back at chapter 21. We're going to just read through verse 37. It says, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, that's the, the Roman military official there, May I say something to you? And the tribune said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? See, this Roman tribune had mistaken Paul for this Egyptian uh, revolt leader. And uh, Josephus tells us all about this. This is the word Sicario. These were assassins who carried this small dagger called a sicar. And, uh, and they were known for that because they would approach Roman soldiers and they would just dagger them, right? Um, kind of a um, violent... Uh, thing that would take place. And so this Egyptian Jew had recruited hundreds of these Sicario, these assassins. Uh, and then once that revolt had been put down by the Roman governor Felix, that Egyptian fled and his movement completely scattered. And, uh, and this particular tribune thought that this Paul might have been one of those assassins, if not that Egyptian assassin. So Paul replied in verse 39 of chapter 21, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And this is an interesting moment here because Paul, maybe his face is swelling, maybe he's still bleeding, maybe he's already getting a black eye, but but they've been beating him to death and the, the tribune rescues him and as they're about to bring him in the crowd is still following this large group of people and Paul asked to speak to them and when there was a great hush he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying and look at verse 1 brothers and fathers hear this defense that I now make before you Uh, Let me just pause here and I'll make a couple of notes and uh, observations along the way. This word translated defense is the Greek word apologia. And it's where we get the word apologetics. You may have heard that word before. If someone is an apologist or if they're in the field of apologetics, you can get uh, master's and doctor's degrees in apologetics. And, and it's, this is where it comes from. It's not, when you hear the word apologetics, it's not like saying you're sorry. If this, right? It's not if you did something wrong and you came to somebody and you said you're sorry. Apologetics has nothing to do with us apologizing for being Christ followers. Okay? Apologetics is the field of defense of the faith. It's defending our faith. 
And apologists, they make a case for our faith and they depend it uh, defend it in the public square through writing, through speeches, through debates, um, either in politics or presentations in universities, or even just in conversation. And you can probably think of some famous apologists um, from our past hundred years or so. Uh, C.S. Lewis was an apologist, uh, the late Tim Keller, um, R.C. Sproul, uh, even Ravi Zacharias was an apologist, Lee Strobel, Norm Geisler, Josh McDowell, Gary Habermas, uh, Hank Hennegraaff. All of these are, are maybe somewhat recognizable names, and they're, they're labeled as apologists, those who are able to publicly defend our faith in such a way that um, people understand the gospel in a better way. And we see this act of defending the faith as a command in Scripture, right? First Peter chapter 3 tells us, uh, Peter is writing, and he says, If you sh- should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed, but have no fear of this persecution, and don't be troubled about it. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make an apologia, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so the command from Peter is that not just professional apologists with MDivs in this field of study should be out there defending your faith, but you, right here in the, in, in the pew, if you're, if you're a Christ follower, that 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 14 through 15, 16, that applies to you. That if someone were to ask you, what's the reason? Why do you have hope? Why do you go to church? Why do you talk the way you do? And why do you refrain from the behaviors that you refrain from? That you should be ready to give a defense, a reason for the hope that is within you. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's going to make this public defense. But, but my encouragement to you is, you may never have a chance to be beaten. Not a chance, right? You may never be beaten and drugged in front of a huge crowd so that you can make this public presentation or speech of defending your faith. But, but you definitely may have it uh, with somebody at the grocery store. Uh, you, you may have this opportunity for somebody in your neighborhood, for a neighbor or a coworker, or for somebody who's struggling. God opens doors for, for believers all the time for you to be able to make this sort of presentation, this defense of why you believe. Why is there hope in your life? And so Paul begins this public defense of his faith. Look at verse 2. And when the crowd heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Uh, translated, that's the Hebrew dialect. It could be Aramaic. It could have actually been Hebrew, but they commonly spoke Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic uh, as well as, as Greek and Hebrew. But, but Paul, either way, addresses them in their own language. And in verse 3, he says, I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. That means he was raised in Jerusalem. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way. Way is a a shorthand for, for Christianity. They didn't have a label for Christianity up until this point in the first century. They, they just called it the way. And you've heard that a couple of times in Scripture. Um, Ryan, if you ever get an email from Ryan Ayer, he signs it of the way, right? That's kind of this throwback to, to the book of Acts when Christianity was, 
was called the way, uh, based on Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life in, in John chapter 10. So Paul says, I also persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters uh, to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to be punished. So you can see what Paul's doing here. Here's this um, angry mob of people who are trying to kill him. And he says, listen, I was just like you. I was doing this exact same thing that you were doing, uh, raised in this city. Um, I was brought up under Gamaliel. And by the way, you'll, you might re- remember that name. Uh, he drops some names and refers to people that can testify about his, um, his way of life. Gamaliel uh, finds his way into the book of Acts in a couple of places. He was a first century Jewish rabbi. He was the leader of the Sanhedrin, which is the, the ruling council of Israel. Um, and he's mentioned a few times, and he is a well-respected teacher. Um, he had a profound effect on the early church. If you'll remember back uh, from Acts chapter 5, the Sanhedrin is meeting. John and Peter had healed the beggar. And, um, and so when they came in, um, um, Gamaliel, they want to beat them and they want to persecute them. And Gamaliel sends the apostles out and he says, Men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do. He said, because if what they're doing is of human origin. That is, if they're just doing this in their own flesh and in their own power, then nothing is going to come of it. And he reminded them that so-and-so came up and he was a big person. And and once he left or died, that whole movement dispersed. But he said, Gamaliel said to them, if this is a work of God, you might just find yourself fighting against God. And so they took his advice and they refrained from doing anything. This is the same Gamaliel. And so Paul, he refers to him and he says, I was one of his pupils. I was one of his students. I was a Pharisee in his um, way of life. And he also mentions the high priest and the whole council of elders. See, what Paul is doing is he's not only identifying with the crowd, I was just like you, But he was also giving them verifiable information rooted and grounded in facts. Facts were his friends. He's defending his faith and he's grounding his defense in truth. And that's that's what a good defense does. Hopefully none of you will ever find yourself um, on trial in a court, at least, um, you know, for anything shady that you've done. But if you are accused of something, let's say you, you have an alibi, you're going to ground your defense. You're going to have your alibi. You're going you're to look for a, you know, cell phone um, time stamps, and you're going to look at messages, and you're going to look at video camera footage and eyewitnesses, and you want to ground your defense in facts, verifiable facts. You want them on your side. And so apologetics is grounded in facts. Paul is providing all this so that if they want to, they can verify a story, they can follow up with these people if they want to. And this is important because Paul is about to get into a more seemingly subjective uh, level of content, right? In the next section, he's going to describe his conversion on the Damascus Road. That's not necessarily verifiable because as, as we're going to read here, Paul heard a voice, but uh, and he saw a light, and he was blinded. But even those who were traveling with him, these other zealous Jews that were traveling with him, they didn't experience the same conversion experience that Paul did. 
So he continues, look at verse 6 through 11 here. He says, As I was on my way, and I drew near to Damascus, about noon, that is when the sun is at its brightest, a greater light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. Now just before we get to verse 12 here, let me just make a couple of observations that are worth pointing out at this point in Paul's defense. Number one, he says that he met Jesus, all right? He met Jesus. This is his conversion moment when he became a Christ follower. And, and for every person, you included, if you've had a story of conversion, that is that you've given your life to Christ, there's a moment when you meet Jesus personally. There is this moment when you're not, in other words, you're not, God doesn't send a, an envoy, an angel, or a lesser representative when a person is becomes a believer. You have an encounter with Jesus in this way. And so that's what Paul describes. He describes meeting Jesus. Uh, Jesus tells Paul, number two, that he is persecuting him. You know, Paul thinks I'm just persecuting these believers or these people who are of the way. And, and so he's dragging men and women into prison and he's, he's being violent toward them. He, he approves of Stephen's death in Acts chapter 8. And so when Paul learns that he's not just persecuting people, but that he's actually persecuting Jesus, it shows us that Jesus takes the persecution of individual believers personally. If you've ever been persecuted or if anybody has ever treated you shamefully because of your faith, because of your public witness, or if they've mistreated you or abused you in some way or been in any way um, unfavorable towards you. Maybe it's a promotion or something that you've been passed over because you're outspoken about your faith. Just know that that person is not persecuting you. They're persecuting Jesus. And Jesus takes that personally as a personal attack on him. And this arrests Paul. It, it holds him up. The third thing I would say to you about this encounter is that Paul's traveling companions see the light, but they didn't hear the voice of Jesus like Paul did. Uh, They also retained their sight. They were able to see. um, But Paul was blinded for three days. So this was a personal encounter for Paul. These other people, we don't even know if they ever came to faith or what happened to them, but they lead Paul by the hand into the city. And a fourth thing I would point out about that little section is that Paul, as a result of this encounter with Jesus, calls him Lord and he's ready to obey. This is a mark of conversion. It's a mark of conversion. Um, Anytime I share the gospel with someone, I try to describe how becoming a believer is not just praying a magic prayer or something like that, asking Jesus to come into your heart, but it's an act of submitting and yielding your will to Jesus. 
Just this past week, I had the opportunity to share the gospel and to draw out some pictures of the gospel. And, um, and on one of the pages, I, I just got an empty piece of paper and I said, sometimes when people give their life to Christ, they, they say, you know, something like, Jesus, I will follow you if, and they, they have this sort of conditional, if, if I'm healthy and if, if my wife looks like this and if I'm provided for, and, and they have all these sort of conditional, if my life is good, then I will follow you, Jesus. And that's the wrong idea about becoming a believer because becoming a believer is the act of yielding and submitting your will, bowing your knee and surrendering your life to Jesus and to say to him, in a sense, here's a blank piece of paper. I'll sign the bottom of it and whatever you want to do in my life, you fill out the details of this page. Does that make sense? Oftentimes people come to faith in Christ with a list of expectations now my life will go well. Like Jesus is kind of a lucky, we don't really use rabbit's foot, but I remember when I was a kid, somebody gave me a rabbit's foot, and I said, what's this all about? Why would you give me a rabbit's foot on a chain? He said, it's a good luck charm, and if you rub it, and you know, if you touch it every day or whatever in some way, this is going to bring you good luck. We have lots of kind of good luck things, and oftentimes people want to dangle Jesus sort of uh, you know, next to them as a good luck charm, that if I have Jesus, then my life is going to go well. I remember this one guy, he wanted to win the lottery so bad. And he wanted to win the lottery so bad that he started to come to church and he had this sort of vision that if I come to church and I give my life to Jesus, then then I'll win the lottery. And I, I, I presented the gospel to him and a girl who used to be a member here called Stephanie Kitchener. And uh, the two of them, I presented the gospel to both of them at the end of this service. And while he kind of went into his motivation for becoming a believer, you know, Stephanie and I kind of side-eyed him a little bit and, and went on with, with what drove her to make this decision. And surprise, surprise, he didn't really last in the faith, right? Because Jesus is not a good luck charm so that you can win the lottery or get a better job or have a better marriage or get a better car. or He's not there to serve your purposes like a genie in a bottle, right? Jesus is not this sort of cosmic God that if you have him on your side, that everything is going to go great in your life. Jesus tells Paul that he's going to suffer for my name, that he's going to be persecuted. As a matter of fact, right at his conversion, he says, uh, you must show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul was initiated into following Jesus with persecution. Look at verse 12. Uh, Paul is now telling the crowd that this one man, Ananias, he was a devout man according to the law. That is that he... He was a faithful Jewish person in Damascus, but he also believed in Jesus. He was well spoken of by the Jews who lived there. And he came to me and he stood by me and he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Paul had been blind for three days and he was just kind of um, led into somebody's house on Straight Street. And, and the Lord had spoken to Ananias in a vision, if you'll remember from Acts chapter 9. And he told him, uh, Ananias, I want you to go uh, and see this man named Saul. And, and Ananias says, yeah, I know, I know who that guy is. He's here to deliver us into prison. And, and God, the angel says, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> and he says, so now I want you to go see him because he's had this vision. I want you to lay hands on him. And, and Ananias says, okay, I'll do it. And so Ananias comes to him and he says, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, Paul says, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. 
And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Let me just pause here and make a couple of points of observation and and maybe some application here. I, I think it's really beautiful how Ananias is greatly used by Jesus in Paul's life. I mean, think about it. Ananias knew who Paul was. He knew that he had letters, that he was certified by the temple authorities, the high priest, to come and arrest men and women and to bind them up and to drag them to Jerusalem to stand trial. There had already been martyrs, right? Stephen had already died. Um, John, the brother of James, had already been um, James, the brother of John, had already been killed, right? Um, there had already been martyrs. And so for this angel to go to Ananias and say, hey, I want you to go to the most violent persecutor of the faith now. He's just down the street from you. And, and I want you to, um, to speak to him and to lay your hands on him so that he may see again. Ananias is greatly used by Jesus in Paul's life as a result of his willingness and his obedience. Has God ever asked you to speak to somebody that you really didn't want to talk to? I mean, somebody who might be aggressive or violent or angry or belligerent about their faith. Oftentimes God does that. And, and, and yet Ananias was willing to do that. He lays his hands on Paul so that he can see again. He shares this prophetic word of knowledge from Jesus over Paul about what his life would become and what he would do and all those things. Are, this is a fulfillment. We're reading Acts chapter 22. This is a fulfillment of what Ananias told Paul that he would do. He said that you would be a witness. And then he baptizes Paul as this first step of obedience. Baptism didn't save Paul. Baptism was this step of public, um, public acknowledgement of who Jesus was to Paul and what he had done in his life. And so, so Ananias baptizes Paul in this public demonstration that he is now a Christ follower. And I encourage you with this story about Ananias because it's a beautiful reality of how God uses other believers in your life and experience and how he can use other believers and how he can use you like he used Ananias in Paul's life. I think one of the greatest joys that you can experience as a follower of Jesus is the opportunity to lead someone else to faith in Jesus. You'll be surprised to know that statistically around 90% of professing Christians in America have never led anyone to faith in Christ at all. That means that uh, nine out of ten Christians have never had the opportunity to, to pray with someone and to present the gospel to someone as they've given their life to Christ. One of the greatest joys I've ever had is, is getting to lead people to faith in Christ. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the um, memories that I treasure the most is um, thinking about the man who led me to faith in Christ and the believers that God used along the way when I was a, an angry atheistic kind of person before I became a believer, God put other Christians in my path. One particular guy named Brandon, he used to wear this um, cross ring. It was a James Avery silver cross ring, if you know the one I'm talking about. And, um, and every day we sat at the same biology table. And, and one day I saw the ring because it was unusual for a sophomore in high school to have a big ring like that. And and I said, what's the ring all about? And he, he clearly, simply presented, this represents my faith in Jesus. And he died on this cross. Well, I was, I, I'd never heard that before, especially from one of my peers. 
There were a group of um, older guys, college guys, who worked in a local ministry called Young Life. And for three years, they would weekly, almost, if not monthly, just take a personal interest in me and come pick me up. And they would take me to this kind of local drive-in sonic restaurant and we would just get a drink together and they would ask me about my life and how you doing and what's going on and and they would occasionally give me a scripture or two a few friends in high school the believers from my very first church uh, a man named jim lang who baptized me um, in november of 1991 at trinity baptist church in norman all these people hold a really special place in my heart and in my life because of the way that god used them in my spiritual formation, either before I became a believer or right after I became a believer. Listen, you're, you're missing out if that's not a regular part of your Christian experience. Maybe you're not the one who gets to lead someone to faith in Christ, but, but if you're not actively involved in the life of a lost person, you may be missing out on this um, abundant joy of getting to be used by God in the lives of people who are not yet believers. And I say that to you as a challenge for 2024, right? It's kind of the time that we do these challenges and resolutions and things. But, but if you're, the longer we walk as believers, the easier it is for us to surround ourselves with just Christians only. And we sort of lose this, uh, this encounter with uh, this voice with people who are not yet believers. There aren't a number of lost people in your life that are filling up a prayer card that you're asking the Lord to save. Develop one of those and begin to be asking God to use you in the life of of an unbeliever. I want to encourage you that God can use you. Even if you've never been used like this, if you're in that category of 90% of professing believers in America that have never shared their faith or shared the gospel with another person, Try to reverse. Ask God to make this a reversal of that trend for our country. Well, Paul continues his defense. Look at verse 17. It says, When I had returned to Jerusalem, that is, after his conversion, he had spent some time in Damascus, he returned to Jerusalem, and he was praying in the temple, and I fell into a trance, he says. And I saw him, that is, I saw Jesus saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, um, I myself was standing by and approving, watching over the garments of those who killed me. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, up until verse 21, Paul has had the crowd of angry, these guys may have still had bloody knuckles, right, from the beating that they had just inflicted on Paul. And and up until this point, they've listened gladly to his entire defense. Um, And so up until this word, verse 22 says they listened to him. And it's interesting to see here where, where they stopped listening and why. They were soaking in his defense up until he said the word, God sent me to the Gentiles. Why was this so triggering for them? I think to help kind of shed some light on it, it might be helpful for us to talk about um, a word that's been popularized in our culture uh, over the last couple decades, but it's picked up a lot of steam over the last five or so years. And that's this idea of Christian nationalism. 
I think to shed light on this, you might need to understand the word nationalism. And we see and hear this word in our culture often. Um, Christian nationalism that we describe in America is this blending of patriotism and kind of Americana, and, and we put it on par with our faith in Jesus, and so those practices intermingle. Um, some churches, if you'll remember back, I remember the first church I went to had a, a big American flag um, on the stage and a big Christian flag on the other side of the stage. Or they would do these sort of patriotic things. Patriotic things. One of them had a, a march that honored veterans. Nothing wrong with that. They, but they would, um, in the middle of their worship service, they would play all four songs from the four branches of military and all the veterans would march in and, and it was a soul-stirring patriotic sort of demonstration um, from the 90s when I, when I remember seeing that. Um, Christian nationalism is a way of blending our, our worship and personal faith practices with these sort of patriotic things. We don't, we don't do things like that anymore. Um, some churches will say the Pledge of Allegiance together at the beginning of their worship service. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And they will blend these things. Um, other pulpits, um, you, you can expect to hear a political discourse and the text is not so much the primary thing that's driving the sermon as much as the text is a, a diving board, something that they start off with and then they dive into sort of a cultural explanation or a political discourse or it's not the way it used to be kind of a speech. These sort of things elevate our country and our constitution and the actions of our government and they put those things on the same level as the gospel of Jesus as though Jesus came and lived and died so that America could be a great country and so that we can be great American citizens, the ideal American citizen. Now, does the gospel have those repercussions as a byproduct? Absolutely. Christians should be the greatest citizens uh, there are. Just as Paul encouraged believers to be incredible citizens of Rome and of, of the Roman Empire. They should not be persecuted for being lawbreakers and, and those. Believers will be great citizens, but elevating our country and our constitution as though the gospel, as though Jesus died to make America great, that kind of an idea, uh, and so that we can take our country for Jesus, all those things get into a blurred area that we describe as Christian nationalism. This matters here because the Jews that Paul were addressing were right with him. They were dialed into his defense up until the moment that he said this, and they were triggered by the word Gentiles, and that's because their expectation of a Messiah was not a personal Savior who would come and forgive us of our sins, but a political figure who would organize a super action-packed kind of group that would overthrow Rome and would make Israel great again. That's what they were expecting from the Messiah, that he would come as this political, spiritual leader who would deliver their nation from political occupiers and from the Roman occupancy, and that he would make Israel a nation, this powerhouse again, and that the Jews would once again be the sole people of God. And so now, the gospel, they find out, is not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles also, that God, in his grace and his mercy, was opening the doors of the kingdom 
to the very enemies that they couldn't stand, up until that point they were with Him. But their hope was not for a personal Savior who would save them from their sins. Their hope was in this political spiritual figure who would save their country. You see the difference there? If Jesus saved Paul so that he could preach to the Gentiles, this angry mob of people, it would mean that the good news of the Messiah was for all people and not just the Jewish people. And that's where his defense was more than they could bear. They were so pro-Israel and anti-foreigner that they couldn't take it any longer. So look at how they respond. Look at the end of verse 22. It says, Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. You know what flogging is? Flogging is this uh, horrible torture practice where they would um, take a person, uh, obviously, you know, Jesus was flogged, and they would stretch out a person's arms over a, a wooden a pole or something like that, and they would tie them and so that their back was nice and stretched and then they would take this whip that was leather that had these bits of bone or glass or rock kind of woven into it and, and they would whip a person to the end of, you know, to the very edge and they figured out that 40 lashes was about enough to kill somebody and so they would do 39 times, up to 39 times. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Paul says, I've been flogged five times by these Jews. And so up until this point, Paul has been through this, and when they're stretching him out, I don't blame him one bit for this. Uh, Verse 25, when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? He didn't play this card very often. Um, But I imagine if you've been flogged five times, like the sixth time you're like, listen, if I don't have to do this, if there's another way for us to... Because this is a persuasive way of getting to the truth, right? A person who's been whipped 39 times in this particular fashion is probably pretty confessional, right, at this point. They're going to confess just about anything that you want them to. And and so Paul plays this card because it is in fact illegal for a Roman to flog a Roman citizen. And so this surprises the centurion. Verse 26, he says, When he heard this, he went to the tribune and he said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And then the tribune comes to him and he says, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, Yes. Verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Meaning he probably had, he wasn't a citizen of Rome. Uh, he wasn't born into the citizen by citizens, and, and he probably had to do military service. That was a, a way for people to, if they signed on for 10 years of military service, then if they served well, then they may have been given citizenship, which gave them all the rights and privileges of being a, a citizen of the Roman Empire. Paul said, though, I'm a citizen by birth. And so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So Paul is able to avoid further beating, and he is detained by the Romans for his own protection. And that's where we're going to end our text for today. Uh, The story's not over, though. Um, Next week, you're going to hear about, and if you want to read ahead, 
This is not some cliffhanger. It's been around for a couple thousand years, right? Um, next week, we're going to read about how Paul's nephew comes and he uh, warns them that, that they're, hey, they're going to ask you to bring Paul out so that they can question him further. But don't do it because 40 people have made a vow of death that they're going to, if they don't kill Paul, then they're not going to eat anymore. Um, and so Paul gets rescued again and the story will continue next week. But that's our, our text for, for next week. Let me just offer you a couple of short application. What should we do with our text today? What should you do? It's hard to find application sometimes in verses like this, um, you know, but, but what should we do? Uh, number one, I would say to you that you should be aware of what Christian nationalism is. You should be aware of what it is. If you're not aware, you should do some, do some reading this week. Uh, and, and you should be aware of some of the dangers when we blur the line between patriotism and the gospel and our practices. Jesus came to save sinners, not our particular nation. We are not the chosen people of God as a nation. I know manifest destiny and all those kinds of things would lead us to believe that, that we are God's special chosen people as a nation of people. But, but putting America on, you know, America's not even ever really mentioned in Scripture. Um, our nation is young compared to others. Only 400 or so years ago, there was no United States of America. And so this idea of, of how our personal faith gets intertwined with our role as a citizen or our patriot expressions, there's some blurred lines there that get um, abused. And I, I'm, I'm using my words carefully here because we should be good citizens. We should be citizens of our nation in a good way. But, but the reminder is that you're citizens of the kingdom of God. And it's, that's where your allegiance lies. That if America ceases to be, that your relationship with Jesus does not stop. Would God pick you up and move you to China or to um, the Middle East as a missionary or to Africa or to anywhere around the world? Though you might cease to be in America, your relationship with Jesus would not be based on your practice of Christianity as an American in an American church in this way. And so I want to warn you about the dangers of Christian nationalism. And if you need more information, more than happy to have a conversation. The second thing I want you to do, and, and this is kind of like a homework assignment. I mean, you don't have to turn it in. I'm not going to grade it, but, but I really want you to do this. I want you to write out a defense of your faith, a testimony, just about a page and just about three paragraphs. It's not a long thing, but, but I want you to put 1 Peter 3 into practice where he tells you that you should be able to give a defense of your faith. You should be able to tell somebody about who Jesus is and about what he did for you and about how your life has changed. And Paul uses a formula that we still use today, right? The first section, he talked about what his life was like as a persecutor of the church. And so your first paragraph on your testimony should be, what was my life like before I met Jesus? A lot of people start their testimony with, you know, I was born, and then I was one, and then I give a whole bio. I spoke at a church once, and they said, this guy's going to give a testimony. He was a convicted murderer, and then he got saved while he was in prison. And, um, and Julie might remember this in Hazard, Kentucky, a small town in the Appalachian Mountains there. And, um, and he, he was supposed to speak for 10 minutes to talk about how he came to be a believer in Jesus. And he spent the first 48 minutes 
talking about prison life and his life before. And then as he was going way too long overboard, he was kind of getting the signal from the, the pastor, like land the plane, right? Because you're way, way too long. Kind of like what you're, some of you are doing for me now, right? And, um, you know, get to the point. And, and so as he's wrapping up in a sentence or two, he said, and then I gave my life to Jesus and now I'm here. It was like this large buildup for like a very little, a testimony should be the opposite. Your your first paragraph should describe your life in Christ or your life outside of Christ. And sometimes you might pick a theme. For me, you've heard me say this many times. My life before Christ was I um, defined by a lack of peace. I didn't have peace in my relationships. I didn't have peace about my future. I didn't have peace about the choices that I was making. Every I couldn't even sleep at night. I had to be under the influence of things so that I could just get some rest. I had no peace in my life. That's the first part. Just maybe a paragraph, pick a theme, and, and, and describe it accurately, detailed, with facts. The second part of Paul's story is your second paragraph. That is, how did you meet Jesus? How did you meet Jesus? At what point did you realize that Jesus was the Son of God who died in your place and he offered you forgiveness and grace and new life and you received it that's what that second paragraph should describe for me it was you know a man going door to door was going through my neighborhood and i was at this point where i just prayed if god if you're real you've got to let me know because i can't live like this anymore and this stranger knocked on my door on february 20th 1991 at 8 30 p.m right i have all these details because it was such an event for me because i wasn't a believer and then this guy led me to faith in christ and then um, that's how I describe in my second paragraph. So that's what I want you to do in your second paragraph, is describe how you came to faith in Jesus. And then the third paragraph, what your life is like after Christ. Paul described his life. He, he was a missionary. He traveled. He was sent to the Gentiles. And he begins to describe this, and he would have gotten into it in more detail had they not freaked out when they, he said the word Gentiles, right? And he will in some of his other defenses. So you, for your third paragraph or your third section of your defense or your testimony, your faith, you should describe what changes have been brought about in your soul since you gave your life to Jesus. For me, the lack of peace was replaced by overwhelming peace and joy and a sense of deep love and and all those things changed me so deep from within that they began to find their way out in my behavior. That's the essence of a defense of the faith. And this is what I want you to do. You, you can show me if you want to. You can work on it. And if you need pointers, I'd be glad to help you. But, but all of you, if you name the name of Christ, should be able to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Lord Jesus, thank you for our passage today. Thank you for the truths of the gospel and for the way in which you save and redeem sinners such as me. People who are far from you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And, and we thank you for that. I know that all around this room there are people who have put their faith and trust in you and, and they are, are active in sharing their faith. And so I pray that for those who uh, that's an area that they need to work on, uh, I pray that you might... Uh, encourage them to complete this assignment that they might be able to give a reason for the hope that they have within them and that you would use them in their context with uh, maybe at school maybe at work maybe in their neighborhood maybe with friends and family that they might be able to share their faith effectively so that you might help them to participate 
and redeeming other people. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for this text. We pray that you would use it for your glory today. In Jesus' name, amen.